Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. From the pages to the podium, Dr. Stephen Dell has long stood out as a true voice of reason in ophthalmology. He has made significant contributions to the field, built a highly successful practice, served many times as an innovator and key opinion leader, and seems to always have the perfect pearl of wisdom to share for any given situation. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I sit down with Stephen to talk about his strategies for making smart investments, and not just financially, but mentally and professionally as well. We also chat about what, in his practice, motivated him to create the Dell Questionnaire and his predictions for the future of presbyopia correction. Here we go. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Well, welcome back to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Stephen Dell. Um, Dr. Dell has been a mentor, I think, to all of us through the pages and through different talks uh, that he's given through the years. And so this is a great opportunity for me to uh, ask him all those burning questions that I've had when I've read some of the articles and uh, listened to him speak. I would say that Stephen is a man of few words, but those words are highly impactful. And so I'm really excited to uh, see where this conversation takes us. So that being said, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, being willing to come on and share uh, some of your thoughts with us. Happy to do it. All right. So let's just dive right in. Um, one of the things that I I think when I first um, was coming out and was trying to figure out the whole premium IOL game, uh, so to speak, I ran into your name with the famous Dell questionnaire. And I found it to be really, really interesting how it really probes patients not only in their lifestyle, but what kind of person they are. And so if you're willing, I'd love to, to sort of get your um, thoughts on how you came up with that, how maybe it's evolved over the years, and how do you talk to your patients about the premium choices, especially considering there's been a lot of advancement, um, especially recently uh, in presbyopia correcting IOLs? Yeah, th- those are great questions, Gary. Thanks for having me here. Um, First of all, uh, that questionnaire came uh, into existence in about 2004 in response to a basically a crisis in my clinic. Um, we were involved early on in some clinical trials for presbyopia correcting IOLs, and so we were really excited when we had commercial, uh, you know, uh, availability of those lenses in 2004. But what I found was that very quickly my clinic was getting bogged down with these very complicated and sometimes circular discussions with patients about what their various options were for IOLs. And I was spending a lot of time educating patients in the lane about things that uh, would probably be better explained in another setting. And I found that I needed a way to very quickly ascertain who wanted to see what and where and I also needed to establish a common vocabulary with patients really quickly because when I talk about intermediate vision, you talk about intermediate vision, you know what you mean by that. You're talking about something that's at the distance of perhaps a laptop or maybe a desktop computer, but intermediate to somebody who comes in for an exam might, they may, they may be thinking that that means the TV 15 feet away, not a mile down the road. So we needed to establish a common vocabulary quickly, establish Uh, whether the patients had any interest in spectacle independence. And uh, that was sort of the genesis of it. Now, what 
uh, I've learned over the years, and we just this year released a new version of the questionnaire, uh, which um, you can find online, um, is that uh, you know, what we've learned is that, in fact, the secret to it is that it subtly alters the patient's expectations about what can and cannot be done and what type of visual compromises they might be uh, forced to make because that questionnaire asks them to make difficult choices. Right. Uh, would they be willing, for example, to give up uh, full stereopsis uh, if you have to do a little bit of mini monovision? Would they be willing to tolerate some dysphotopsias? If, if, uh, if they're using a multifocal or an EDOF lens. Those are the kinds of things that we like to know about, uh, along with a general assessment of their personality. Because if you think about it, a lot of these patients were meeting for the first time, and they're making a permanent and really vital choice about what they want their vision to be like for the rest of their life. And we don't know these people very well in many cases. So the more we can gather about them in a short period of time, the better. You know, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up. We're asking patients in the span of maybe a couple of hours to make a life-altering decision based on optical properties that they've never considered before. And so they sometimes just look at us like a deer in the headlights. They just don't understand what we're trying to explain to them. They don't understand the idea that a lens can't necessarily do all things. And so it's very interesting that the, the questionnaire becomes a tool not only to gauge expectations, but like, as you mentioned, it can actually drive them um, or prime them for the conversation that you know, we do have compromises to make. And, and these decisions are really important and will impact your life. And these are maybe perhaps the ways that they, they will do that. You know, sometimes if, if you, uh, you start explaining something to a patient and you assume that they have the same vocabulary that you have. And for example, we start talking about non-dominant eyes right. to patients. Right. There are many patients who are learning at that moment that they have a dominant eye and a non-dominant eye. That's news to them. So uh, it's very difficult for them to process that along with these terms like extended depth of focus or multifocal or perhaps uh, uh, brand names that they're not familiar with. And so it can be bewildering. And also, they just learned perhaps 10 minutes earlier that they have a cataract. Right. Right. So, I mean, are we making a mistake in some regard to, to try to gather all the information and have that conversation? I don't know that there's an, I mean, I, this is something I struggle with. So I'm just kind of, you know, show, showing you what I think. It's necessary that the, we have these discussions with patients, but sometimes I'm sitting there in the lane or I'm sort of processing after a conversation. I think, man, do they really understand what they're, what they're getting into? And I tell them, this is an, you know, this, you're an adult this is an adult decision, and it's just like I'm a contractor for the house. I can pour the basement wherever you like, but once the basement is poured, there are some things that you're going to have. You know, you're the one who has to live in the house. So I try to let them know that uh, these decisions will impact them, but it is um, always a little bit of a conundrum to know how, to what level are they really understanding the decisions that they're making. But I do think the tools such as the Dell Questionnaire are very helpful for me to gauge what their wants are and really pair them up with a lens that I can kind of infer that will hopefully give them what they're, what they're wanting. Yeah, I think it's important that I've evolved over the years to almost de-emphasize a discussion about technology. Mm -hmm. So we don't market technology, we market outcomes. 
And so we ask the patient, where do you want to see without correction? And how we get to that goal is really sort of my end of the equation, not so much the patient's end of the equation. And um, the other thing that I do that I think is different than most surgeons is that we use what I call the upside down approach to uh, uh, discussing these technologies. And let me start by saying what the right side up approach is, what most people do. They say, well, you can have a standard lens or you can pay a little extra and you can get some astigmatism correction or you can pay a lot extra and you can get toric lens with great astigmatism correction. And if you pay even a little bit more than that, I can give you near vision as well. And if you pay the most, I can give you all of the above. Plus I'll use my special laser for the cataract surgery, which is less risky and has better outcomes or whatever it is that surgeons say. And I I think that if you went to a heart surgeon and they gave you a similar discussion, like I could put in a decent valve and you'd be able to sit in a chair. I can put in a better heart valve and you can walk around a little bit. I put in a super duper heart valve and you can run. And if you really pay extra, I'll use my good heart and lung machine, which causes fewer strokes. Now you'd look at that surgeon like they're out of their minds. So I turn that upside down and our assumption, our, our default condition is that the patient is going to get our top shelf technology that they're going to get a presbyopia correcting solution if they're medically uh, a candidate for it. And that if they need to work down from there for medical reasons or financial reasons, that's fine. But we don't offer upgrades. We offer downgrades. And it's a very subtle, uh, very subtle, but very important distinction because there are many patients who believe that by opting for these uh, add-ons that they're tempting fate that they're saying to themselves, well, maybe I shouldn't try to go for that fancy lens when, in fact, that is state-of-the-art cataract surgery in 2017. Right. You know, I think it's also interesting the way we talk about vision. And I think this is something I've learned recently with the Symphony lens. I really have enjoyed looking at defocus curves, which is, you know, maybe I'm the only one. But I think it's interesting when you look at the defocus curve because you get an idea of area under the curve vision. And I really have been trying to have a conversation with patients who are maybe early presbyopes and say, you know, you've already lost, you know, perhaps half of your vision. If you look at it quantitatively from near to distance, they have a large chunk of their vision that has been compromised. And instead of saying, well, you're still 20-20, what are you complaining about? You know, get some reading glasses. And I think that if we can show patients sort of their overall quantity of vision, you know, where they can see maybe in different conditions, near intermediate distance, light, you know, dark, et cetera, we're giving them more of a, a quantity of vision that, that, or a state that they're at currently. We can then also show them the state, the desired state. And I think you're exactly right. If you're a patient who has lost all this quantity of vision, why would you not opt for the opportunity to regain as much of that quantity of vision as possible? So I think your approach, again, you're, you're right. It's the same conversation, but having it in the opposite way sort of primes them for um, making a choice that will give them, them you know, more, more vision. I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, I know this is sort of segueing into some of the work you've done with accommodating lenses. Give me a little bit of background on that. I know that's an area of interest for you. And just walk me through um, sort of uh, where you think things are now, maybe where things have come from, maybe where they're going. Yeah, I'll, I'll start out by saying accommodating lenses are really hard. It's a <laughs> very, very difficult thing to make work. Um, 
I started early on in the process uh, with um, what was at first CNC Vision and later became Ionix and later was acquired by Bausch and Loam, then Valiant. And, uh, and so I, I was, I was involved early on in, in understanding how the crystallines actually worked. And it became apparent to me that there are forces inside the eye that are available to be harnessed that can be used to manipulate the position of a lens. And that led to a number of designs that uh, I've uh, created over the years that we've put in patients uh, outside the United States. And that is, it, it's, it, and once again, I'll say it's very difficult to make these things work because you have a moving structure in the eye and yet you want good refractive predictability for distance vision. Right. And so those are in some cases competing forces. So there are accommodating lenses that move a lot, but they have poor refractive predictability. Right. And then there are accommodating lens designs that have very good refractive predictability, but they don't have great accommodation. Right. Um, I think where we are right now is that really no one has come up with the ideal solution, at least that I've seen, and I certainly haven't. Uh, but we're getting closer each year to the reality of being able to harness those forces. And you mentioned earlier about quantity of vision. And really the other side of that equation is quality of vision. Right. And so when you make a quality quantity uh, compromise, in other words, somebody you can give a huge quantity of vision, but their quality of vision is poor, that might be an example of that would be an early generation multifocal. That can be a good trade for some patients, but maybe not so great for others. The, the holy grail is gonna be a high quality of vision and a high quantity of vision. And I think that's where we're headed, but uh, it's a very difficult space. What do you think, and I'm not sure if you've looked into this, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but what do you think about the electro-accommodating options that are out there? Is that something that you think is on the future? I know that there are some companies that have come up with some designs, and you know, as computer chips are getting smaller and sensors are getting smaller, and you know, do you feel like that may be a, a viable option in the future as well, or, or who knows? Well, it, you know, it's been pursued by two, uh, two groups, really. Um, one of them seems to have kind of abandoned it, and the other is, uh, is proceeding ahead. Conceptually, it makes a huge amount of sense. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint, I think there are some possible challenges. Right. Um, I don't think we've ever had uh, an electromechanical device, or battery-operated device, implanted intraocularly. And so I think there are concerns about uh, long-term stability, sure. safety, uh, efficacy. You know, what do you do if it you breaks? Need, <laughs> you need to go, uh, you know, recharge your eye or I, I, you right. know, whatever right. it is. Right. But uh, I think that conceptually and from a biomechanical standpoint, it makes perfect sense. Okay. Well, I agree. I think it's it's interesting to follow the progress and see the things that uh, eventually come to market. So we'll just kind of keep keep watching and waiting. And, and here's here's maybe a little a different question, and it maybe gets to the root of maybe a lot of decisions that you've made in your life. You've built a very successful practice. You've worked um, as a key opinion leader. And I'd just kind of like to get your thoughts on what's a decision tree or decision process for you making investments, 
not necessarily monetary investments, but investments in your time and investments in your mind, because we, those are very limited resources. We just have, we have so much energy and time and you are very active in obviously in practice and also with industry. How do you make decisions on when you're going to say yes to an idea or a company? And then also on the flip side to say no to some things. Well, it's a really great question. It's it's in a complicated topic. I think I'll start by talking about investments outside of ophthalmology. Okay, you know because uh, many of uh, your listeners reach the point where they have a fair bit of disposable income, and they're wondering what to do with it. And sometimes people ask me what to do with their disposable income, and I, I don't know. You say, "Give it to me. I'll yeah, take it. I'll, ha- I'll be happy to I take it." I have no idea, but I uh, I can tell you that. Um, particularly when people come to you with an investment that is, for example, a, uh, a closely held business or an idea for a company, and they come to you uh, as a source of capital, I can pretty much assure you that everybody else has already turned them down. Okay, <laughs> okay. If they're going to doctors right. for capital, all of the venture firms all of the traditional sources of funding. The smart money has said no. Has said no. <laughs> okay. So, you know, sometimes you, you've heard the expression, there's a sucker in every, at every poker table. And if you, if don't, you don't know who him, it is, it's you. It's you. <laughs> yeah. So I think you need to be very careful because uh, by our nature, physicians are not in an adversarial sort of uh, uh, mindset when we, interact with patients. We, we are in a trusting mindset. We, we trust what the patients tell us and the patients trust us. And so that is a little bit of a different mindset than the mercantile environment of uh, business deals. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to believe what people tell us and that can get you in trouble. Um, and I, I, I think that's one of the reasons that physicians are, uh, have a reputation as being poor investors uh, because we are trusting and we assume that people have our best motives at heart. And that's not always the case. Right. Interesting. Um, but it is very true that you know, why would a, why would a, a startup company or uh, someone who needs capital go to uh, a, a relatively wealthy individual for capital when they can go to a more sophisticated investor who might have strategic value and could introduce them to other, uh, other folks down the road who could help their business grow. Uh, so I, that's, that's one caveat that I would throw out there because I've seen it uh, happen many, many times. Um, in terms of investing your own intellectual capital, it's really linked to your financial investment as well. Uh, if you're going to invest in something and you're going to put a significant amount of money into it, you better understand that business well. And you better be willing to dig down, drill down deeply and invest the time to uh, learn about that business. Sometimes there are investments that I'm presented with that are frankly too small to warrant the brain damage that's associated <laughs> with just learning about the space. Right. Even though it seems like a great opportunity you know, somebody says, well, you can own the most successful, 
you know, parasailing business in Texas, you know, like, right. <laughs> why now I need to go learn all about that. Right. And, and you got to get way into the weeds on the parasailing wanna, ups and downs. Do right. I don't want to do that. So that's why sometimes, uh, ophthalmologists tend to invest in the ophthalmology space. And there's a certain logic to that because you can, uh, you already know, you know, the, you know, the data, uh, you know the space, you know the relative uh, chances for success probably better than most investors. Domain expertise, right? Yeah. Or you could just, you know, buy an S&P 500 index fund and... Uh, Vanguard fund and let it ride. Take a third of your money, put it there. Put it, take a third of your money, put it in Amazon and take a third of your money and put it in Google and you'll be just, you'll be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. So what about what? But what about um, ideas and industry? So coming at it from a, a different angle, I guess more of a time suck. So let's say that there's a new product that's out there, a lens, a drop, um, a technology, and you're presented with an opportunity to be a key opinion leader for that. And you realize that there's going to be a certain amount of your time, and there may be some travel, there may be some of your life that's tied up in that. How do you make those decisions, you know, on technologies that you're going to be willing to talk about versus other technologies say, okay, I'm not, not going to be the guy on the podium to talk about this? Oh, that's easy. If you're not passionate about the product, don't get involved with it. If you don't truly believe that it works, you haven't seen, if you haven't seen tangible benefits for your patients, don't even mess with being a key opinion leader because that comes through. Uh, to your colleagues. I so uh, I think you need to focus on things that you've seen make a tangible difference in your practice. And uh, those are the things that you should focus your energies upon. Uh, you know, it, and, and there are plenty of opportunities for many of us to, to be key opinion leaders. And sometimes you can get spread too thinly. Um, so I think it's vital to pick things that you really are passionate about. And I think that that's, um, it's easy to hear that and to think you're doing that. Um, but I do feel like that's a potential area, especially for younger physicians when they're given an opportunity to talk on, you know, X, Y, or Z, it can be really hard to turn that down, especially when you're kind of trying to build your name and reputation. Um, and so the question is, is pursuing excellence enough? My, in my opinion, yes, it is. I think if you do a good job and people see that, industry takes note of that versus trying to throw yourself towards every opportunity that's available to you. I, I, I feel like that's a potential area that I see people sometimes getting um, maybe spreading self, themselves too thin, maybe losing a little bit of, of credibility when you're hearing them talk about eight things you know, maybe they're really passionate about one, but it's diluted by the other things that they're they're maybe not as passionate about. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a it's a good point. I think uh, you if you are really interested in being an effective KOL, um, you need to be willing to talk about the great things about a product, but you also need to be willing to discuss the things that are maybe opportunities for improvement with that product. Right. Um, and your colleagues will be very sensitive to that. If you are nothing but a positive cheerleader for a particular technology and you gloss over the imperfections or areas where it could be better, people pick up on that. And so you have to recognize that we work with industry, but we work for 
patients. That's right. I mean, those are the people that we are ultimately responsible to. And I have encountered folks who are KOLs who are in some ways indistinguishable from an employee of the companies that they work for. And that ultimately compromises their efficacy. And if you really pay attention, you notice that they don't have the same credibility over the years as their colleagues who are more forthright in the balanced presentation of any technology's merits. Well, I think that's very well said. I really appreciate you taking time to give us your perspectives on all things ophthalmology, from talking to patients and lens designs and even being an effective KOL. So I'd love to extend the opportunity. Anytime you'd you'd like to come on again, uh, the door is always open. So thank you. Thank you, Gary. It was fun. I appreciate it. I've often heard Stephen Dell referred to as the Yoda of ophthalmology, and I don't think that comparison is too far off. His insights are very valued, and we're lucky to have been privy to some today. For more wisdom from many fantastic contributors to our field, please check out past episodes at itube.net slash podcast. And as always, thanks for listening to Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We'll catch you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.